Hello. So tonight I'm just going to dive right into a case. Um, I'm going to give you the Coles notes on this case here. Let's see, this is, which case was this? DH. Oopsie. DH, 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 R versus DH. All right. <clears throat> so in this case, a man was accused of historical sexual abuse against a child while he was a minor and was tried in a youth court as a result. And he's an adult, and so was the complainant at the time of this uh, case. The complainant was an adult at the time, and her evidence mainly relied on the inference that she had a bedwetting problem as a result of ongoing sexual abuse. The appeal panel overturned the conviction, finding that the trial judge failed to resolve major inconsistencies when accepting the account of the complainant as true. All right, so there you go. You got a glimpse of my uh, database there. <clears throat> so that was the Coles notes on this case. So we have a, a classic case of, I wet my bed, therefore I was sexually abused as a child and I'm blaming person A. All right, so, this is R versus DH, and the case was resolved. <clears throat> Pardon me. The conviction was overturned in 2016, uh, and it was an Ontario case. So this was actually held in a youth court, but both participants were adults, and it's a what's known as a historical allegation. All right. So, from the actual appeal judgment, uh, this appeal, uh, this verdict was on appeal from the conviction entered on February 18th, 2014, and the sentence was imposed on May 20th, 2014 by Justice Marion L. Cohen of the Ontario Court of Justice. Uh, the judge in the appeal panel, Feldman, Justice Feldman, ruled the following. The appellant, D.H., was convicted in youth justice court of three counts of sexual assault and sexual interference. And by the way, before I continue, I will put a link to this case in the description bar uh, once I make it to the, to the chat portion, once I'm finished with this. All right. So, the appellant, D.H., was convicted in youth, youth justice court of three counts of sexual assault, sexual interference, and invitation to sexual touching of his cousin, the complainant. All right, so this is a family case. The events were said to have occurred when the complainant was between the ages of 6 and 11, and the appellant was between 13 and 18. So, not only was this a case of in the family, but they were also both very young at the time. Allegedly, anything happened. The complainant uh, was 22 at the time of the trial, while the appellant was 30 years old. The appellant was sentenced to six months in custody, followed by three months of community supervision, plus 18 months of probation. And he appeals this conviction. So the three witnesses that testified at trial were the complainant, her mother, and the appellant. Very common scenario here. All right, so the parents of the complainant were separated when she was a baby and on alternate weekends, beginning at about age one, she would sleep at home where her father lived. 
During the relevant period, he lived with his mother, his sister, and his sister's son and infant daughter. The complainant's grandmother's room was on the main floor. The appellant had a room in the basement, where there was also the only bathroom in the home that the family used, as well as a second room where his mother and infant sister slept. The complainant said that while she sometimes slept with her grandmother, most of the time she slept with the appellant in his room. She said that because she had a bedwetting problem, she did not sleep with her grandmother. The appellant denied that the complainant ever slept in his bed with him or in his room. There was no other evidence on this issue. The trial judge concluded that in light of the bedwetting problem, it was reasonably possible that the complainant was consigned to the appellant's bedroom to sleep. Why? How is that reasonable? In my last live stream, I talked about the difference between reasonableness and believability or possibility. Anything can be a possibility, but reasonable is when the evidence, the overwhelming circumstantial evidence points to that fact to be true. So in this case, the judge has no idea what reasonable means. The judge just decides that it's essentially possible for some reason that because she had a bedwetting problem, she would sleep in her cousin's room. Whatever, okay. Moving on. The complainant testified that the first incident of sexual abuse occurred when she was about six years old and in senior kindergarten. Well, isn't that the case for pretty much all of us? <laughs> she and the appellant were watching television in his bedroom on his bed. He removed her one-piece pajama and the underwear she was wearing underneath. He started touching and rubbing her vagina. He also kissed her on the lips, but did not French kiss her. Well, that's great. She said he was breathing very heavily because he had asthma. So he was having an asthma attack while he was doing this. The incident ended when the grandmother's male friend came down the basement stairs to use the washroom and the appellant told the complainant to put her clothes back on. That sounds real reasonable. <clears throat> Following this first incident, the complainant said that every time she went to her father's house, the appellant would try something new. Sexual acts would occur repeatedly, including French kissing, touching her vagina, cunnilingus, analingus fellatio, and failed attempts at penetration with his penis. Oh my god. All right. She said that the appellant would always take off her bottoms and leave on her top, that he did not wear a condom, and that he did not ejaculate. He called her baby, treated her like a girlfriend, and refused to stop when she told him to. The complainant had an ongoing problem with bedwetting, soiling herself and smearing feces. Now, if I were a dude, that's the kind of girlfriend I'd want. Yeah. All right. The complainant testified that when she was 11, her mother repeatedly asked her why she did those things and what was wrong with her. She said that this eventually led to her telling her mother about the sexual abuse. She said, DH is doing it to me. And although she did not give any details, her mother understood what she meant. The mother's version was that when the complainant was 11 years old, she suspected from an incident where the complainant was playing under a blanket with her stepsister that the complainant had been abused by someone. The mother began to ask her about it. 
The complainant said that the mother never suggested inappropriate touching, while the mother said she asked the complainant directly whether anyone had touched her. Finally, after a number of weeks, the complainant responded, yes, it had happened. And after being coaxed for the name, she said it was her cousin, the appellant. Well, dun-dun-dun. So, the mother immediately calls the appellant's mother and tells her, your son molested my daughter and your son touched my daughter. The complainant's mother testified that she did not remember where the complainant was at the time of the phone call. Although the mother said that the call was not on speakerphone, she thought that the complainant would have heard her repeat what was being said. The complainant testified that the call was on speakerphone and that was, and that, that was how she heard what was being said on the other end. According to the complainant's mother, the appellant's mother was concerned for her own daughter's safety as well as about the effect of this revelation on the grandmother, her mother. According to the complainant, the appellant's mother reacted with concern that the allegations would jeopardize the appellant's imminent attendance at university. The complainant's mother said that she then asked if the appellant was there and his mother gave him the phone. He acknowledged that he had touched her daughter. He said that he was just experimenting and that she could send the police because he knew what he had done was wrong. She asked him how he would feel and he responded that a priest had done it to him. The complainant's account of this part of the phone call was similar to her mother's, except she did not say that the appellant referred to calling the police or specify that it had been a priest who had done something to him. Two completely different stories here, but stories that are also constantly in the media. So anyone can make this shit up. The complainant's mother did not report the abuse to the police. She gave a number of explanations for this. She did not feel she had enough information to call the police, despite what the appellant had told her on the phone, allegedly confessing. She was discouraged by a colleague at work who said that it was not enough. She did not think that the police would do anything. She did not want the appellant to be hurt because he was family, and she thought both her daughter and the appellant should get counseling, which she told the appellant's mother, but she knew that he did not get any counseling. So the complainant's mother continues her relationship with the appellant's mother. She never discusses the phone call with her daughter, but over the next 10 years, pressed her for details about the abuse. However, the alleged abuse, however, the complainant did not disclose the detail for many years until sometime just before she went to the police in January, 2012. According to the mother, the complainant also disclosed further details to her shortly before the trial. So. This is clearly a case of the mother is demanding her child to tell her about how her cousin touched her inappropriately and the daughter refused to ever say such a thing because nothing had ever happened until finally this blew way out, way out of proportion. Um, it got to a point in, at a time where obviously the police station's policies had evolved to accept 30, third party complainants, um, complaints about somebody else's abuse, particularly child abuse. So it becomes a zero, poli uh, a zero t tolerance policy comes into effect. And in many of these police stations, uh, it, it becomes 
instant response by default as soon as somebody walks in and says something happened to a child, even if it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever, the cops will take the case. They'll, they'll, they'll accept it as, as truth. So here's what we have. You know, we have the, the complainant's mother saying, I know he did this. I knew he did this to her all along. He confessed, yada, yada, yada. But of course, this is all just stories, you know. <clears throat> so moving on, the complainant said that the first time she gave a detailed account of what happened was to the police. So there you go. The first time she's saying anything ever happened was to the police. <clears throat> she said that she gave her mother details of the sexual abuse afterwards, but before the trial. So after the police statement, but before the trial, of course. So what'd you tell the police? What'd you tell them? What'd you tell them? Well, I told them this. Okay. So the appellant testified and denied all of the complainant's allegations, of course. He said that he saw the complainant when she came on weekends. And while she sometimes slept in the basement in his mother's room, she did not sleep with him in his. He denied the phone conversation with the complainant's mother. He also denied being at the birthday party described by the mother and said that he never saw the complainant again after she stopped coming to the house. Now here's what the trial judge did with all of this evidence, which obviously isn't very much. You've got a story and then you have the appellant basically saying, yeah, that didn't happen. <clears throat> So the trial judge, uh, uh, the, the defense counsel, made a number, number of arguments to the trial judge. First, the appellant was straightforward and unshaken in his evidence, and he could do nothing but deny the historical allegations of events that were said to have spanned a long time over a period. Second, he submitted that the court should have significant, concern, significant concerns about the reliability of the Crown's evidence given the complainant's lack of disclosure for five years, excuse me, and her failure to complain to police for 10 years. So the defense is using the, this is not a recent disclosure case, so therefore you should look at this skeptically because of that, which is reasonable. Courts don't like that anymore though, but it's a very reasonable argument. Third, there was a lack of detail in the complainant's description of the sexual, alleged sexual acts, which were described generically. Fourth, there were discrepancies between the complainant's statement to police and her testimony at trial, particularly with respect to the frequency of the sexual acts. And fifth, there were inconsistencies between the evidence of the complainant and her mother, such as whether the complainant cried, when she was taken to her father's house on weekends or whether she was okay to go, as well as whether she stopped going at age nine or age 11. <clears throat> so obviously there's some historical context around the family's um, relationships that aren't really being fully brought because of course in sex crime cases, crowns like to control the case so that no context of, the, of the, the fabric of the relationship of the complainant and the appellant is brought into the case because that has nothing to do with the alleged sexual act at issue here. <clears throat> it doesn't matter if they knew each other. It doesn't matter if there was a custody battle. It doesn't matter if there was, you know, some other issue going on. No, no, no. Let's, let's move our focus away from that. So obviously that was a problem here. All right. Sixth. 
The defense submitted that the trial judge should not use the complainant's very emotional manner of testifying to strengthen an otherwise weak crown case. So the case was obviously very weak and the complainant just probably cried on stage, on, on stage. It is a stage essentially, um, on, on the stand. And, uh, you know, we've heard of a case before where a judge cried when the complainant was crying and it was just like a big cry fest and oh my God, this poor woman, you know, she's obviously a victim. So it doesn't mean she is. <clears throat> the complainant had great difficulty controlling her emotions while testifying at trial. There were repeated outbursts where she berated the appellant and his mother who was in the courtroom. She described how unwell she was with Crohn's disease and how the memories of the abuse and seeing the appellant in court made her sick. The trial judge described her manner as tormented. Hmm. Interesting little fact there. She has Crohn's disease. So somewhere along the line, I mean, the bedwetting could have been a symptom of that. Um, and also the Crohn's disease obviously was a very debilitating situation for her. And somewhere maybe in a therapist's office or somebody recommended a way for her to get some money compensation um, guaranteed disability payouts you know again this is context important context that can form the motive behind making such a claim but the crowns the prosecutors are very good at making sure you don't do that and even defense attorneys wouldn't do it some defense attorneys so anyway, the defense also submitted that the complainant had a reason to fabricate the allegations to her mother in order to respond to her mother's concern about her bedwetting, soiling, and the incident with her stepsister. There you go. Finally, with respect to the phone call, the defense submitted that the appellant denied it and that the mother's reasons for not calling the police after such a phone call were illogical and incredible. All right, so the trial judge began her legal analysis and assessment of the evidence by first acknowledging the merit of the defense arguments. See, this is, yeah, anyway, especially the difficulty an accused has in defending against allegations of historical sexual assault. She referred to the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof on the Crown to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. She agreed that in assessing the evidence of the complainant, that she should not give too much weight to her demeanor as a witness. She also acknowledged the fact that there were inconsistencies between the complainant's testimony and her mother's, and between what the complainant told the police and what she told the court. She further acknowledged that, in some cases, both the complainant and her mother could not recall dates or the complainant's age at relevant times. All right. So here's where you have the trial judge laid out everything that was wrong with the Crown's case that just basically makes it blatantly obvious this case shouldn't have even made it into a courtroom and this dude needs to be acquitted. But after she lays out all of this framework saying she acknowledges this, that, and this, and that, then she goes on and she uses a precedent called R versus WD, which I criticize in a previous video. She uses this precedent and addresses the evidence of the appellant. She found that he was neither shaken in cross-examination nor inconsistent. However, relying on another precedent, 
R versus JJRD, she found that she did not believe the appellant and that the, his evidence did not leave her with a reasonable doubt. Do you see what happened there? She's basically saying his evidence looks credible. He was credible in the presentation of his denial, but I don't believe him. And there was a precedent that she cited that allowed her to do that. This is not the first case I've seen this happen. This happens in many, many cases. She then turns to an assessment of the complainant's evidence, acknowledging that she was giving evidence as an adult of the events that had occurred when she was allegedly a child. The trial judge further recognizes the context of the complainant's difficult childhood, where her mother worked two jobs and was separated from her father, and where the complainant had problems with bedwetting and soiling herself and slept at the foot of her mother's bed until she was 15. Who does that? I think there's a problem with the parents if she's doing that. In that context, the trial judge viewed the complainant's difficulties remembering details of places and dates as peripheral matters that did not affect the acceptance of her evidence on the material points, which the trial judge found was consistent and unshaken. Those points were what happened the first time, the kinds of sexual acts, how they were performed, how the appellant behaved, and the details the complainant remembered that were not contradicted by the appellant. We were in the same room together. Oh, that's not a contradiction. Therefore, her, her evidence is credible, so she must be telling the truth, and I must believe her that she was raped by this man. That's the logic this trial judge used. The trial judge also took into account the demeanor of the complainant while testifying, including her anger and torment, as well as her issues and disturbing behavior as a child. The trial judge stated that from that behavior, one could draw the inference that the complainant had been experiencing abuse, although other inferences were possible. But the trial judge stated that she considered this history as a factor in assessing the complainant's credibility. So in my uh, Evolution of Feminist Theory, Moral Panic and the Law series, which I have four episodes in that series, um, I discuss around the moral or the uh, satanic panic ritual abuse era of the 80s where many people were wrongly accused, prosecuted, and jailed, and convicted. Um, that one of the common signs that the police were trained and instructed to look for was bedwetting and bad behavior or outburst behavior of children which is common behavior of children, especially if they're frustrated by something, but doesn't always mean that they've been, that they're being abused, right? So this judge is, is using what we could reasonably consider debunked logic and theory that bedwetting and outbursts and bad behavior was a sign of sexual abuse. This judge is actually using that theory to uh, to determine the credibility of this complainant's bullshit story that was not corroborated by anything. This judge is really reaching. So the trial judge found no evidence also that the mother's questions, you know, 
Were you abused? Did he touch you? Who touched you? Tell me who touched you. It was him, wasn't it? He touched you here. He touched you there. That's essentially what the mother did. So the trial judge found that no evidence that this mother's questions had tainted the complainant's evidence. I mean, the elephant is right there in the room and the judge is saying, no, it's not. She found that the mother's inaction following the disclosure by her daughter and the appellant's admission to her during the alleged phone call to be consistent with a lack of animus towards the appellant. Sorry, I stuck the word alleged in there. <clears throat> and also consistent with the complainant's evidence that she did not give her mother any details of the sexual abuse. Okay, so there's animus towards the appellant or lack of animus towards the appellant. Right, well, we also have to remember that the Crown prevents you from admitting such context of a case. So now the judge is saying, I don't see any animus, history of animus here. Well, of course not, because the Crown is directing the case and the defense lawyer will play along with it as well, where you don't admit such a thing or you just, maybe it was admitted, but it just was dismissed as, nah, that's not relevant. So the trial judge explained that both the complainant and the appellant's statements to the mother were general so that the mother did not really know what had been done to her daughter. The trial judge found that the appellant's admission on the phone to be confirmatory evidence, although the appellant denied that the call took place. The trial judge believes the mother. The trial judge used what she viewed as the mother's extraordinary lack of animus towards the appellant and his family as indicative of her credibility regarding the phone call. So because there was no evidence of animus towards the appellant, that makes her credible. <laughs> Again, like, what the fuck? Um, she found nothing illogical or incredible about the mother's testimony that she continued to view the appellant and his mother as family and that she did not want her daughter to be full of hatred. So issues submitted by the appellant regards to all of the trial judgments that I just read. The appellant submits that the trial judge erred in law by failing to give effect to the third branch of WD by one, failing to resolve material inconsistencies in the evidence on significant issues which could have raised a reasonable doubt, including A, inconsistencies between the evidence of the complainant and of her mother, and B, inconsistencies in the complainant's versions of the frequency of the sexual abuse between her disclosure to the police and her evidence at trial, and ground two, failing to give adequate reasons for drawing conclusions and inferences from the evidence of the mother and of the complainant that did not accord with the logic of the situation and were contrary to the evidence of the appellant. And three, relying on the complainant's problems in childhood as evidence that she was sexually abused without expert evidence. Okay, so these issues are the actual grounds of appeal that were used to submit this appeal. So there's three grounds here, and typically appeal judges will pick one ground and ignore the rest. So let's see what happens. The uh, first ground, failure to resolve material inconsistencies in the evidence on significant issue. issues. <clears throat> the, 
The trial judge gave lengthy reasons for the decision, including instructing herself on the burden of proof in the application of WD and explaining why she found the complainant and her mother to be credible and what she identified as the material issues. It was only because she accepted their evidence that she rejected the evidence of the appellant relying on this court's, on the court's decision JJRD, which states, an outright rejection of an accused's evidence based on a considered and reasoned acceptance beyond a reasonable doubt of the truth, conflicting credible evidence is as much an explanation for the rejection of an accused's evidence as is a rejection based on a problem identified with the way the accused testified or the substance of the accused's evidence. So, a trial judge's assessments of credibility are accorded very considerable deference on appeal. All right, that's a key thing, deference. That word deference basically is saying the trial judge has the right to make that conclusion however she wants to. So as long as the trial judge has sufficiently explained how significant discrepancies that could undermine credibility and reliability have been resolved, this court recently reiterated that principle in R versus MA. So it just continues to reiterate that the judges can just decide whatever the fuck they want and the appeal courts won't mess with that. Um, while a trial judge is not required to resolve every inconsistency in the evidence, the trial judge should address and explain how or she, he or she has resolved major inconsistencies in the evidence of material witnesses. Okay. Resolving major inconsistencies. Again, does anybody consider them a major inconsistency? That's an issue. So... The failure to articulate how credibility concerns are resolved, particularly in the faces of significant inconsistencies in a complainant's testimony, may constitute reversible error as an accused is entitled to know why the trial judge is left with no reasonable doubt. Okay, so I, I'm assuming they're accepting the first ground here. I'm not a, completely clear on that. But inconsistencies between the evidence of the complainant and her mother. All right. So this is where the appeal panel will now determine if the inconsistencies were major enough. And if they were, then they can decide on whether or not the trial judge wrongly made a decision on that. <clears throat> so again, the appeal court acknowledges uh, or the, 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 uh, the appellant submits that although the trial judge acknowledges many of the inconsistencies, um, she fails to resolve those inconsistencies. I've seen this in many cases. This is nothing special. Um, so what I want to get to is whether or not in this judgment, the appeal court actually agrees. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, let's see. The, by view, okay. It looks like the appeal panel agrees here. By viewing the versions told by the two witnesses as roughly consistent, the trial judge failed to resolve the inconsistency or to consider its effect on the credibility and re reliability of each of them, and therefore on the issue of reasonable doubt. All right, so that's a win <clears throat> for the defense. The, the, the trial judge failed. <clears throat> Excuse me. As far as inconsistencies in the complainant's version given as an adult, um, again, the appeal court must uh, 
review whether or not they were major enough. Let me go back to find the bottom here. Um, again, it looks like the appeal court agrees that the judge failed to consider how this significant change in the complainant's memory should be viewed in the context of both her credibility and reliability in recounting the events in formal context with legal consequences. Good. So the appeal panel agreed with that. That was a major inconsistency that she did not resolve. Good. And then number two, ground number two, failure to adequately explain significant conclusions and inferences from the evidence of the complainant and of the mother that did not accord with the logic of the circumstances. And again, the trial judge accepts the evidence of the complainant, yada, yada. They're allowed to do that because of all of these pre precedents that led him, but blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to go to the bottom of this reasoning analysis. So the conclusion on this ground was that although the trial judge was entitled to accept the evidence of the mother with respect to the phone call in light of the appellant's denial, it was incumbent on the trial judge to give a basis for her finding that bears scrutiny. All right. So the appeal court agrees with that as that ground as well. And then the third ground effect of the crown's failure to call expert evidence. All right. So, <clears throat> um, the, the appellant submits that the trial judge erred by giving weight in her analysis to an inference of sexual abuse drawn from the complainant's behavior in childhood, the bedwetting, soiling herself, and acting out, without expert evidence. This is a very good point. Many judges do this. The Crown's position is that the trial judge was careful not to draw this inference, but only use these behaviors as part of the complainant's history in the assessment of her credibility. Well, let's see what the appeal court thinks. A close reading of the reasons supports the position of the Crown that the trial judge acknowledged that an inference of abuse could be drawn from the complainant's history, but that other inferences were also possible. The trial judge said, in this context, the history is a factor to be weighed in assessing the complainant's credibility, and I have taken that into account. So the appeal court does not give effect to this ground of appeal. Do you see how they did that? They did that by saying simply that when the trial judge was considering the uh, complainant's history as part of the reason that this must have occurred or that she was credible, she acknowledged that there could have been other inferences, but the judge chose the inference that it meant she was a credible witness and that she was abused. These were credible. It was credible to believe her statement that these are the symptoms of her being abused. So the appeal court basically says, yeah, the judge used the proper framework in her reasoning for that particular ground. So we do not give any effect to this ground. Nonetheless, the overall conclusion is in applying the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and using the rule in JJRD, the trial judge rejected the testimony of the appellant and found that it did not raise a reasonable doubt because she accepted as true the evidence of the complainant and her mother. The trial judge was entitled to make those findings as long as she gave adequate reasons 
that explained how she resolved material inconsistencies and discrepancies on significant matters in the evidence that she accepted. <clears throat> in my view, the totality of the errors by the trial judge in failing to resolve important discrepancies in the evidence or failing to do so in a cogent manner where required undermines the reliability of her analysis. It does not amount to a considered and reasoned acceptance beyond a reasonable doubt of the truth of the conflicting credible evidence of the Crown's case in accordance with JJRD and constitutes reversible error. So I would allow the appeal, set aside the convictions, and order a new trial. So there you go. <clears throat> the appeal judge basically found that even though the trial judge did everything right, she did not properly um, resolve the important discrepancies um, when it came to the inconsi large inconsistencies and the, you know, conflicting accounts. She didn't, I mean, this is what you have in all of these cases is you're going to have a he said, she said, or she said, he said, the, you know, a denial and a he did this and a denial. No, I didn't. That didn't happen. So basically the judge has no other choice but to choose. Well, I believe that person's evidence. So the appeal court's job is to determine if when the judge came to that decision, if they use the proper framework and precedence in order to come to their conclusion, if they used it properly. So in this case, the appeal court found that they didn't. The judge did not do it properly for particular aspects of the case. So this conviction was overturned and a new trial was ordered, but it never proceeded to trial again, which most likely means the Crown either A, withdrew the charges and uh, no trial occurred, or stayed the charges for a year, which meant you know, he's still open to being retried if he does anything bad or has any issues with the law um, within that year. <clears throat> so whether or not he's able to been able to clear his record is another story, but he will still have a police contact record of criminal uh, of a criminal charge. He will still have that on his record, but he won't have a criminal conviction on his record. But because of this particular charge um, against a minor, it makes it almost impossible, if not impossible, to clear your police contact or criminal record of that particular charge. But as you can see, this is a case, again, another case. Why did it go to court when clearly there's no evidence? There's no proof. How can you find proof beyond a reasonable doubt? You can't. There's no proof of anything. All right, so I'm going to let you guys absorb that and let me uh, grab the link to this. And if you have any comments, go ahead and put them in the chat. I'm going to open that up in a second.
guys. Alright, so I'm just gonna pull leave the chat here for now so I can see it. Alright. Yeah. Alright, here's the case. If you want to snag that link, but I will put it in the description later. Alright. Um I know someone who made those Crohn's who made those Crohn's disease, but maybe it was the opioids that she was hooping. <laughs> Drugs. <clears throat> A lot of these cases eventually, yeah, that's that's the problem. The person's hooked on drugs, opioids, cocaine, whatever, um, and they're ma they've made a mess of their lives, or they've they've seen an addictions counselor or some sort of therapist that's basically told them, um, you know, that you're an addict simply because of your drug addiction. Um, your your drug addiction is a is a cause of your of abuse that you experience as a child. This is so common and it's so wrong. And this case that I just highlighted for you is a clear-cut example of that. <laughs> yeah, a whole case based on stories and zero investigation into the facts. What, what facts can you possibly investigate in this case? I mean, there, there was uh, uh, just stories, that's all. A hysterical mother and a daughter with Crohn's disease and who had a history of bedwetting and for some reason they had a and and a hatchet to bury with the cousin so but of course there's there's always that extra bit of context to a story that we may never know it's it doesn't come out in the court proceedings or at least to the public documents that are available to us yeah, all they had to do was ask family members if this bed was peed on by her because he would have made that well known. Not only that, it would have smelled a lot. I would have assumed. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's just weird. Yeah, the whole bedwetting thing is just creepy. I mean, every kid has a problem with that, but um, yeah. Anyway, to, 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 to say that he, the kid slept in his cousin's room so that she could pee in his bed, that makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> It's like, ew, why would you, if that's the case, what, like, yeah, that's gross. Anyway, all right, so there's my overturned conviction for the week, um, and uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'm going to close this stream, but it'll stay live for a while, and uh, yeah, thank you for tuning in, and again, I will add the link to the case that I discussed in here in the description bar for this. All right, guys, have a lovely evening. Thanks for joining in.